psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host Niall Campbell. I was joined today by Stevens Rehn. Stevens is a Brazilian neuroscientist specialising in stem cell research. Stevens is professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro and researcher at the Dor Institute for Research and Education. He's a member of the Latin American Academy of Sciences and the World Academy of Sciences for the Developing Countries. He's a member of a litany of other scientific committees and together with colleagues from California, Stevens is the author of the first papers describing the existence of genetic mosaicism in the human brain. He has been a pioneer in culturing human-induced pluripotent stem cells, neurospheres and brain organoids in Brazil. In 2016, Stevens and his crew published one of the most cited scientific papers about Zika virus, demonstrating the association between infection and microcephaly. The model of human brain organoids employed in that manuscript has been used in order to identify new compounds against the effects of Zika virus in the developing nervous system. His work with studying the cellular impact of psychedelic substances is what put him on my radar, and as such I attended his recent talk at Breaking Convention at Greenwich University. In this podcast we give a broad overview of his work, and all relevant resources will as always be linked in the associated blog. Just go to mindmanifestpodcast.com to get all the relevant links if you want to deep dive into either Stephen's work or the recent troubling occurrences into the state of science under Bolsonaro's regime in Brazil. So I hope you enjoyed the chat and see you on the other side. I'm here with uh, Stevens Rehn. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah. Um, thanks so much for, for joining me today here at Breaking Convention, Stephen. Um, so you've uh, given your talk today. Um, you've covered, I'd say, the broad uh, scope of the work that your lab is, is currently doing. We're going to uh, come on to all of, all of that. Uh, the first area that seemed to generate the most traction in the Q&A was about um, your work with brain organoids. Uh, so before we maybe get into some of the more esoteric elements of that, I'd just like to hear from you, what is a brain organoid? Okay, so Neil, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Yeah. And uh, we work in the lab with uh, stem cells. So it's a specific kind of stem cell that they are called pluripotent stem cells. So these cells, they can give rise to any cell type in the body. Yeah. And uh, when you make the cells, you can make the cells from the skin or from the urine of uh, people, because in the urine there are some cells that are also detached there. So we get the cells, then we grow the cells, they're basically ordinary fibroblasts, and then we use a technique that was developed by a, a Japanese scientist called Shinji Yamanaka in 2007. And this guy, he won the Nobel Prize in 2012 with this technique that's basically called reprogramming. So with this technique, he's able to get these cells that they're adult cells, for example, and make they, they, they become like, a, like they're going back in time and then they behave as embryonic stem cells from the individual that's the donor. 
And then with those cells, you can like create uh, uh, heart cells, uh, lung cells, uh, any different type of cells. But these cells, they are usually uh, into a plate in a dish. And then, uh, actually, since the 50s of uh, last century, there are people trying to create more complex models in which the cells are growing as aggregates. Mm -hmm. And when they are connected, it's much more similar to what we have in our body. So these brain organoids, it is kind of evolution of this kind of culture of cells in this 3D or two-dimensional kind of uh, structure. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, have several aspects of the brain, of at least of the developing brain that you can see uh, in humans. And it's a very interesting tool because it's like human cells with DNA from the person that like donated that material. So it's a very uh, unique uh, kind of uh, methodology to understand the, the development of the brain and to, and to test different compounds that can be uh, able to, uh, to af affect the, the, the formation of the brain and the connection among those, among those cells. And I understand that one of the major, well, maybe two major progressions since uh, the work in 2012, which obviously didn't exactly start in 2012, you've alluded to the past, but in the last decade or so, it sounds like the, there have been tweaks and real progressions in terms of the ways to guide and culture these organoid cells and also then, as we've seen in lots of different areas, uh, in, you know, massive steps forward in terms of imaging. So I'm wondering how, if someone had been interested in this work around about the time it came out for the, the, the Nobel Prize, which always generates a bit of you know, more widespread interest, how have the techniques around culturing, if that's the right term, and imaging of organoid cells and, and anything stemming from these mesenchymal, you know, uh, uh, cells. How, how, what, what have been the big steps forwards in, in your lab? Yeah, so like uh, there are several labs that are trying to use the same kind of techniques that we are using. There are some people, in, lots of people in the US actually, people in Europe, in Japan, of course. And uh, the idea is that there is an evolution now in the techniques of imaging those cells and you can basically follow cells, live cells, and you can see them like connecting to each other in a dish. You can see them connecting each other within these organoids. So this kind of techniques um, make us uh, have a different uh, approach or a different perspective about the formation of these uh, cell types that they are eventually going to be the same cells that like we see in a real brain. So it's a, it's a very fascinating period of uh, time in science, especially if you like cell biology, to work and to, to basically play with this kind of uh, approach. And the then the, the the part of your talk where you really showed how this play, which is where it all starts, where that starts to meet the world of application, which is where the general population start to get really interested. A good case study, I would, I would imagine, would be the, the example you give of, of um, creating a viable vaccine for the Zika virus. Could you just outline how um, the work that people like yourselves are doing was instrumental in, in getting to that point? Okay, uh, like I'm sure that there are several uh, labs in the world that are thinking about having these organoids, for example, to create real organs for transplantation. This is one thing that could be eventually happen in the future. The kind of strategy that uh, we are working with is to have these cells as some kind of uh, tool to uh, understand the different uh, diseases and to understand, for example, the formation of the brain. So in the case specifically of the Zika, what happens that was 2015, so there was a huge outbreak in the number of cases of uh, people with Zika virus in Brazil, something very uh, unique and very strange. Uh, we're, talking, we're talking here about almost 200,000 people with Zika. 
On the same time, you have also an increase in the number of cases of children with malformations in the brain. So we have, like in a very short period of time, almost 3,000 cases of children with microcephaly. And this connection between the uh, microcephaly and the uh, outbreak of Zika was... Uh, people were seeing these two things happening at the same time, but uh, we decided to test the hypothesis that the virus was affecting directly the brain that was being formed. So we, we got this virus, and that was an interesting story because it was a, a carnival in Brazil. Probably know how carnival is some kind of big party there. And we got this virus with a colleague of us, and then we add the virus to the cells during the Saturday carnival. That's one of the biggest say, days on the party there. And you have the, the, the people that are part of this paper that we published in Science. We were there, and then we add the virus, and then we follow what was happening there. And then we realized that not only the virus was, were, was able to infect the cells, but also if you let them, these brain organoids uh, live with the virus for 11 days, they start to, to grow much slower than the control organoids. And this is this was what, what exactly the, our colleagues, the radiologists, radiology colleagues that were having the imaging of the children they were seeing. There was like some kind of uh, slow growth of the brain of these children. And this was, was at some sense an important uh, discovery to help, of course, with the other colleagues this, to see this connection. It's interesting point also is that Brazil was one well, was the second country that most produced papers regarding Zika virus. So the, our community was very active, proactive in terms of like trying to understand what was happening in Brazil at that time. So I'm very proud about our scientific community in Brazil that was really able to have a very fast answer to something that was completely new to our country. Mm, it's amazing how the scientists get blamed when they don't come up with the answers, but those cases of quick successes, especially when it's like, okay, we have this virus, it's just rampant in the community, it's causing awful things like microcephaly. I think um, the people, all the work that people did with the AIDS virus would be comparable in that this the speed with which the scientists started to produce clinically usable answers is quite amazing and, and yeah you're dead right I think uh, the Brazilian scientific community should be very proud of themselves for that the is one of the reasons because it has been easier traditionally to research in Brazil because of the legality around um, psychedelics maybe you could speak a little bit to the special case of legality around psychedelic research in, in Brazil yeah like actually what is legal there is the use of ayahuasca Right, so because of the ayahuasca was allowed in these uh, religions ceremonies in Brazil since 1984, so uh, ayahuasca was not seen as a psychedelic. There is an NDMT there that's a psychedelic, but because of the ayahuasca, it was much, much more uh, easy for the scientific community that was interested to understand and to study the, 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 the brew to get access to, to, to these compounds without, a, without any kind of uh, problem. So this is basically what happened. First with the people from the social sciences, for example, my, my brother, my youngest brother, he's an anthropologist. So his PhD was, for example, studying the ayahuasca, the ayahuasca churches in the Netherlands. And uh, also some of my close friends, like, for example, Siddhartha Ribeiro and Raul Araujo, they were the pioneers on uh, studying the uh, 
doing neuroimaging uh, studies in the brain of uh, uh, volunteers that they were taking the, the ayahuasca. And the, their results in 2011, was, they were very interesting because they were able to see that like, there was an activation of the occipital uh, cortex. That's basically the area that the vision happens. But talking to, to my brother and talking to these uh, friends, I realized that like, there's still lots, lots of uh, missing uh, points, especially when you think about uh, in terms of like, cellular responses to these compounds or even to mole mo molecules that will be changed within the cells after they're exposed to these uh, uh, psychedelics that are basically agonists of the serotonergic receptors. So because of that, like, uh, I started to get more interested to try to understand and basically try to explore these possibilities. So this is basically what happened there. We have the uh, ayahuasca was already incorporated as something legal for the scientific community to study. We have a very interesting in the social sciences field studies on that. And uh, two, three guys uh, starting to describe wonderful things in terms of like neuroimaging. And I tried to help or try to go inside with uh, the tools that we were working in the lab like for the last uh, 20 years. So it's been a real cross-pollination between this neuroimaging community and the people in, in your world who are working with these pretty potent cells and, and there's been a nice crossover there. I'm going to bookmark, we're going to come back to the sort of, um, how should I say, how religion and politics have in a way helped <laughs> create an, a culture in Brazil which has seen these this like flourishing of the scientific community, but also how in other ways it has really troublingly uh, potentially uh, dampened down the work being done, but we'll definitely co come back to that. Um, I just wanted um, to, to, to pick you up on, maybe if you could explain, it sounds a little bit like the way that I'm conceptualizing all the talks we've seen is there are the therapists, people like Rosalind Watts, um, uh, I forget her name now, I've had a blank, but the lady at the, in CIIS, they're developing these mechanisms at a phenomenological level, the therapeutic mechanisms. You then have the imperial team and others like them working at the um, neurological mechanism level, and then it seems that you guys are down here working. Everyone's trying to figure out what psychedelics do to the human being, and it seems like you guys are working at the cellular mechanistic level, so it's just almost like these three levels of analysis just going down. Would that be a fair characterization of, of the, the sort of world that you're in of cellular uh, and molecular mechanism, trying to understand how they interact with the human being? Yeah, and no, I think that you, you, you made a very interesting uh, characterization of the levels of uh, uh, research that are happening in the psychedelic field. Yeah, our, our basically we are interested on this very simple and basic questions uh, that are associated with the how the cells they uh, behave after being uh, exposed to these compounds, what are the consequences to these uh, cells that when they are connected. So it's a very basic question. And what's important in, in my point of view is that with this kind of approach that we are combining, for example, proteomics with cell biology, with uh, uh, the different tools that we can apply to the cell biology, we can have a, maybe a, a more sharp clues uh, or, or about how can we develop these areas. For example, we can uh, combine in this, all of these uh, techniques, we can s say or suggest 
at least, oh, this could be the pathway associated with uh, inflammation. This could be the pathway associated with brain plasticity. And all of these pathways that are being altered by these compounds can have some kind of uh, correlation with uh, these psychologists as are describing, the psychiatry are describing, and people in different fields. So I think that it's uh, when you, you really want to, to give an important contribution to science, you really have to work in, as a network of people with different backgrounds. If you're basically talking to someone that knows exactly what you do, you're not going to be f so far away. Sure, and you're absolutely right. That's what these conferences are amazing at because I noticed a few like aha moments where people were saying, oh, okay, that is a completely different level of analysis of the thing that I've been working with my entire life. Uh, and I hope that, that the direction is, is in, in all ways. Um, from a, you know, let's say, uh, the Petri dish view, <laughs> how do you, as, a, um, as that type of a scientist, how does this sort of more interpersonal stuff, how, does that inform the work that you guys do at all? Do you ever get any ideas from uh, the ways that the, the phenomenological reports, or does that direct research at all, I wonder? Yeah, no, definitely, like, uh, it's very important to uh, read and to uh, see what other people are doing in the different fields. But also it's very important to realize the limitation of our kind of approach, sure. right? I love this kind of uh, research that I do, but of course I'm, I realize that like we can't say, for example, that like all of the pathways associated with an uh, antidepressant effect mm -hmm. could be explained with this kind of uh, DMT elves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it's important like to, to for us to be uh, of course excited with the kind of contribution that we have, but on the other hand, it's important also to realize that okay, this is the maximum that we can contribute with, and then of course we need. It's a oh, very okay. small piece break. of the puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. Um, to come on then to the more the, at, at let's you know zoom the mic the, the microscope in uh, to the molecular level. Um, one that uh, one compound one uh, that that really st stood out from the work that seemed very very promising was the work with harmine. So um, I would be lying if I said that I had uh, the deepest of understanding of that. So. A lot of times, podcast interviewers will go, "What is this?" Is it, well, I of course know, but the listeners don't. I'm f I'm all ears to hear about how harming relates to Dirk One A and the two main strands. It seems to be uh, showing promise in terms of treatment of neurodegenerative disease, and also one that I wasn't aware of was uh, its uh, potential effects with uh, Down syndrome. Um, so, if you could maybe speak a bit about that. Yeah. Okay. So, when you think about the ayahuasca brew. It's usually like it's a combination of compounds, and uh, none of these compounds is harmine. So basically, it was uh, known for a long time that like harmine is a inhibitor of one enzyme that's called monoamine oxidase, and because of that, it uh, preserves the uh, DMT. That's really the NDMT. That's really the one that makes the that gives the psychedelic feeling. So because of this plants are combined in this brew, you protect the DMT that then is able to reach the brain. So this is basically what people think about the, the importance of harming in this kind of a brew. And then we, we decided to ask, okay, is there any other effect directly with harming into the, the brain tissue? And this is why we exposed this brain tissue to this beta-carbolin. This, this, this is the, the, one of the names of the, the compounds including harming. And uh, we become very uh, interested and excited about the results because not only we saw an uh, increase in neurogenesis 
on the other words, there was an increase in the formation of new neurons, and it's uh, already, it was already described for other uh, traditional antidepressants, for example, Prozac does the same. But more than that, we saw that like this proliferation, this neurogenesis, depends on the inhibition of one enzyme that is known by this acronym DIRC1A. And this DIRC1A, it's a novel factor, risk factor for Alzheimer. So people that have Alzheimer, they have this enzyme very highly expressed and very active. The same happens with uh, people that uh, have uh, Down syndrome because they have three copies of the chromosome 21 and uh, they have uh, more of the APP, that's one of uh, protein that give rise to these uh, amyloid plaques. And then this uh, DIRC1As is also highly expressed there. And uh, this connection between uh, all of these neurodegenerative problems associated with Alzheimer and DIRC1A, it's something that's become more hot in the field of Alzheimer. And then for us, it was very, very uh, promising to realize that like Harmine is able to block it. And then what we did, we did a, uh, this assay combining brain organoids with proteomics to try to find which could be the pathways, the signaling pathways altered by Harmine. And then we found that like several pathways associated with brain communication, with synapses, as you say, we say, they are, can be preserved by Harmine. So I'm not going to say to you here, okay, Harmine can be one medicine against Alzheimer. I can't say that. This is the kind of thing that we were talking uh, earlier, that like we know the limitation of, but this could uh, give us some kind of direction to explore a little bit more the potential of Harmine uh, as a future medicine for uh, neurodegenerative disease. So like attenuating neurodegenerative disease, it might make the, the onset and it might, it might prevent that drop off that some people see, which is so devastating for families where their personality is, the person is irretrievably altered within a year, you know, a year or two, it, it gives, is that, I mean, I, you're speculative of course, but is that where the researchers are thinking it will potentially be useful and that it's, it's, not, it's not a cure, but it's going to mean that your progression into the effects of uh, neurodegenerative disease will be atten attenuated in a positive way? Is that the... Yeah. Basically, I think that I can... I, I should say much less than that. Okay? Sure. Okay. I have the... Uh, what we have, what's, what's real data... Harmine blocks DIRC1A. That's it. Yeah. It's associated with neurogenesis. When you do this proteomics of these brain organoids exposed to Harmine, we see lots of very interesting pathways that are altered in Alzheimer that can be uh, reactivated with Harmine. This okay. is what we have. That's it. But I, I agree that's a very interesting hypothesis to uh, explore. Mm -hmm. The uh, effect, the therapeutic effect of Harmine or even of the combination of Harmine with uh, psychedelics, even in the ayahuasca brew, as a potential uh, medicine, but for the very long future. We definitely sure. need much more research on that. Yeah. And with, um, are, are, with the Down syndrome, um, it's how are the mechanisms, is it very very similar or you know how, how does the work million dollar question but how does the how does it 
differentiate between those two you know, conditions? It, unfortunately, they are very similar. Like you have even in, in children with uh, Down syndrome, they have a red plaques. So because of this uh, increase in the production of APP, you have also an increase in the uh, formation of, of these uh, uh, plaques of amyloids. And this is some kind of hallmark of Alzheimer. So it's at, in, in the lab, uh, you, there are some groups that use these cells from Down syndrome patients or Down syndrome volunteers as one uh, way to understand not only Down syndrome, but also Alzheimer. So I'm just mentioning that because it's interesting to make this connection between uh, the DIRC1A happening or the, activi the activation of DIRC1A uh, being high in both Down syndrome uh, people and uh, Alzheimer patients. Yeah. Um, the, uh, another field of... A topic, this is just firing my brain now, but a topic that has come up through lots of different people at this conference uh, in a sort of roundabout way uh, has been sleep. I've heard Torsten Passy mention it in some other context. Um, a lot of the people from Imperial in different ways have, have mentioned it. I forget her second name, but the lady, Emily, who was talking about the treatment of alcoholism. Um, and I've recently read a book and gone to a talk by Matthew Walker. And it was the most standout, the most fascinating aspect was this sort of, uh, again, everyone sort of angling at, we can't say anything more than the science says, but there is speculation that the, the derangement of sleep is so deleterious to the, the prevention of these things. And, and um, he uses an example of two, uh, again, anecdotes, but two famous advocates of like sleep is for the weak and we don't need to were um, Ronald Reagan and, uh, and Margaret Thatcher, both of whom de 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 developed a neurodegenerative illness. Uh, has that been at all on the radar in terms of sleep and it's just a bit of a brain fart from me, but how would you potentially see the work? We're talking about cross-pollination. How has sleep and its manipulation come onto your radar, if at all? Yeah, like uh, as you, I also uh, saw very interesting talks about yeah. trying to connect like sleep and even the effect of the psychedelics. Uh, again, I'm going to... Uh, not basically, I'm, I'm not going to answer your question because it's the yeah, limitation yeah, of yeah, my, sure. my, my study. Yeah. But I, my, for example, this guy, Siddhartha Ribeiro in Brazil, he's one of the best uh, experts in sleep in the world. So he probably is going to think about ways to connect it because he, he's working with uh, experimental models, uh, mm -hmm. including uh, animals and also humans. Yeah. So this could be something. I, I think that's a very interesting and very hot topic yeah. to understand uh, the, the connection between, for example, DMT and the sleep. And, uh, and cluster headaches. Dreams. The lady today was talking about how you know it massively impacts on REM phase and you know the onset and things like this. Uh, the the takeaway from Matthew Walker's work was be more boring, get more sleep. Um, it's like a good cost benefit analysis. It won't. It definitely won't hurt. And deranging, just deranging, really primitive aspects of the human being. <laughs> but, but it's an impo important point because like because of the uh, amount of light that we're we have been exposed like we basically we are we are not sleeping yet so much that we need to and there's a very recent paper that was published last week showing that like when you don't sleep when you sleep not well you start to also have dna damage and the dna damage has several consequences so the, the evolution make us need to sleep and uh, on the other hand because of the technology improvement because now we like we have uh different uh, screens like uh that we basically exposed it to different lights. This is changing a lot uh, our uh, behave. 
and definitely it's not good. No. Yeah. The, um, the again, just sort of segue with sleep. Uh, I've previously worked in a in a residential rehab for for um, addicts, and they came uh, with a whole heap of comorbidities. The best therapist especially for affective disorders, in my opinion, was none of the clinicians, including myself. It was the bedroom because they would They would just say, oh, well, I, I've been here for three weeks now and I feel so much better and the therapy's really working. And, of course, your ego says, oh, that's great. But the truth was we had very heavily policed bedtimes, no caffeine after two. They were in bed by ten. They each had their own villa. They were up at seven for exercise. And that was the I saw the inverse effect of some of how bad it was for people not having any sleep and how just destructive it was to their psyche and and I also um sort of just saw the inverse I couldn't agree more with that I wonder how that will play out with depression because I think the solutions will come from lots all these different levels of analysis and just to speak a little bit about your work with depression more specifically and the hypo- the neurotrophic hypothesis if you could maybe outline that, unpick that and, and you know we can have a chat then about how that will potentially apply mm-hmm. yeah uh, one of the things when you get the classical antidepressants is that they are not the effects not uh, so fast yeah. right? it takes a while for the person taking the antidepressants really have the results when you at least the hypothesis that based on the work of Draulio again this guy in Brazil showing that like you have a very fast antidepressant effect with the ayahuasca we started to think what could be the mechanism associated with that and what we 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 saw with our models is that not only you have a very fast change in plasticity based uh, in for in the formation of synapses but also the kind of effect is very similar in terms of time with the effect that is caused by BDNF. That's this uh, factor, the trophic factor that's uh, uh, associated with plasticity, with these connections among cells. So, and thinking that like uh, in this cascade that makes the antidepressant to work, you need BDNF. So one hypothesis is that when you think about psychedelics, the release of the BDNF is going to happen earlier comparing to the classical antidepressants. So this could be uh, one way to explain this difference in time, comparing the uh, depressants that they are in the uh, antidepressants that they are in the market with the ones that can come from the psychedelic field. So it sort of expedites and really speeds up this this process, this cascade. You find that it's truncated in people, and this is the, at, at the cellular level. I don't want to scale this up to, to human, you know, to, to sort of behavioral studies, but that's the theory is that it introducing this truncates and expedites this cascade from there are there are lack of connections and or there there's a the the functional is is it a functional anatomical level that there just aren't these synapses in place that would make people you not be depressed and then you see all these new connections that uh, protect to a certain level against these affective states is that the right way yeah like when you have this uh when, when you, you have depression, you start to lose the synapses. So, uh, and then maybe you have to take a while for you to reconnect them, to uh, go back to a, a better uh, state. And uh, this is why the, the formation of new synapses could be associated with an antidepressant effect of any compound. 
So this is the, the connection. So it's the same mechanism of say Prozac. It's just you see that it's faster and well, it's more profound and quicker in, 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 in ayahuasca. Is that exactly the mechanism? The mechanism would be the same, but uh, with uh, ayahuasca or even with and, uh, other uh, specific compounds, psychedelic compounds, this is probably going. It probably happens faster than with the classical antidepressants. Again, just. On anecdote, just my own experience, in it, but I've heard a lot of people mention this. After uh, taking psilocybin, I did this legally, and I'll be speaking about it on the um, in, in, well, psilocybin truffles, but ostensibly the same psilocin, same thing, in in Holland. Uh, the 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 night after taking it, took it, you know, in the morning. Both times I've done this, both times done legally. Um, very specific headache. Now, again could be placebo, could be any number of things, uh, could be psychosomatic, but something in me said, don't take a painkiller. It felt like a, you know, train tracks changing in my brain. I'm just putting that out there because when you put those slides up and showed about this expedited process of synaptic neuroplasticity and how it's sped up by this compound in your system, that is exactly what it, it felt like. I don't know, again, hard scientist you can only say as much as the research shows if any what are your thoughts if, if I say that is that no I think that's your story very interesting but it's hard for me to try sure. to make a connection because right. it was only one exactly. your specific uh, experience sure. so we of course can think about experiments to test if it yeah. is really connected or not but I prefer just to mention that's sure. very interesting but uh, yeah, it's hard for sure. me to, to make a comment yeah mm-hmm. um I agree, and, and even if there's a thousand anecdotes, the plural of anecdotes is not data, so it has to be done experimentally. I, I just thought we are at the stage now where, um, it was mentioned actually in one of the talks, um, uh, I, f- um, I can't remember who it was, someone from the Imperial team, they were asked about someone becoming addicted, and they, it was the addictive capacity of hallucinogens, and, and instead of rubbishing it, he said, get your friend to write it up as a case study, because we are definitely not past the state of case, if anyone who thinks we're past the state of profound case studies is thinking we're further along than we maybe maybe are yeah, yeah. no totally i was there i i, I saw his comment and i totally agree it's a completely new field we have of course to 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 describe everything that's happening there because we don't know we don't know including microdosing including everything that uh, is happening nowadays we need more research and this is also why i think that's so beautiful to be in this kind of field, right? Because we're living this uh, kind of psychedelic renaissance, lots of things that like were happening in the 60s and because of like political reasons, much more than medical reasons, this kind of research shut down for a long time and fortunately it's happening again now. So it's a very important and historical moment and uh, but we must be very careful and definitely we have to be uh, aware for any new data for them to have more uh, or strong conclusions. Yeah, I appreciated that, and I've noticed a bit more crossover. Just that was a hard scientist not repudiating case study, and it was someone who maybe is more inclined towards case studies coming to a lecture that was essentially about you know neuroscience and a lot of graphs on a on a, on a slideshow. So I think that's super healthy, and a long way that we continue. We can't go back to our little silos of expertise and expect to move forward. Um, to move on to one of the bigger boys, one of the ones that um, maybe doesn't get as much press or is maybe more poorly understood. Um, you've been doing a, um, quite a bit of work with 5-MeO-DMT and I was interested to hear about the findings in 
protein expression. So maybe you could speak a little bit to, to that. Okay, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, work we did with uh, one former student of mine. Her name is uh, Vanya Dakshi, she's from Serbia. Yeah. She was work, working with me in Brazil. So it was using the same kind of model. We grow these brain organoids, we expose them to 5 mil DMT, and then we basically get all of the proteins that are uh, being within the cells. These organoids, they have around five to six million cells. Then we break the cells, we get all of the proteins, and then we try to, to, to follow if they are increasing in amount or decreasing. And uh, having this very big puzzle there, we try to get the pieces of the puzzle, and then we have some computers and some uh, software and some algorithms that are going to help us to uh, try to uh, decipher. Ooh, decipher is correct? Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which are the pathways associated with that? We do this kind of work with a very uh, inter interesting guy in Brazil. His name is Daniel Martins. He's a one guy with a very uh, big hand in proteomics, and his group is, is helping us on that. And based on this kind of approach, combining cell biology, proteomics, and this software, uh, very sophisticated software, we were able to identify, for example, that the pathway, the signaling pathway associated with uh, inflammation can be altered by 5 mil DMT. And lots and lots of proteins, actually 1,000 proteins, they were altered by 5 mil DMT. And lots of them associated with brain plasticity, again. So sure. basically all of these uh, psychedelics acting through serotonergic receptors, they seem to alter plasticity. They seem to make more uh, easy for the cells to communicate to each other, at least in the very basic level. Mm -hmm. So this is what we have as data. And of course, based on this kind of data, we can think, we can extrapolate, we can create new hypotheses to explain what people, that the, the clinicians, the psychologists, people working with people, real people, can uh, try to get some of our data to try to understand better what they are seeing in these guys. And Okay, let me try and, if I'm trying to understand this, uh, and we'll come on to that, and I'm going to get you to really clarify, to drill down on what proteomics is and, and how to have a good, for people can have a good working knowledge of that. Just as a few terms that I maybe want to unpack so people can really follow along. Um, you've got these organoids. The, the 5-MeO-DMT uh, is introduced uh, to that. And for anyone listening, just pause and listen to the episode with Michael Pollan. He's spoken quite nicely about, about that and what it is and where it comes from if you're not familiar with the, with the compound. Uh, that impacts cell signaling pathways in the cells, is that correct? And then that, it's basically like the messaging between cells that then leads to whether, like which proteins are produced by the organoid itself and you guys can can assess that and then algorithmically basically factor analyze what, or, or, or you know, you can figure out what, what proteins were expressed and what their traditional, or what their, what's known about those proteins and what they're usually implicated in, is that correct? Is that yeah, exactly like yeah. that, like we, we try to understand how the cells is behaving sure. after being affected by sure. the 5 mil DMT. And weird came into my mind, and, and like it's sort of analogous, we talk, keep talking about these different levels, uh, some of the models at a therapeutic level that have been generated, and Rosalind Watts gave a talk about this, the nature of the therapeutic interventions is being derived from all of the interviews with all of the current participants and they've taken and they're looking for terms so is that a is that a fair analogy where it's like we have these thousand proteins 
they're not all different. They cluster in terms of these areas. They're associated with inflammation. They're associated with this. And from that, you can make these statistical inferences about what MENEO-DMT is doing at a cellular level and how that's going to scale up to the human. Is that a fair? Yeah, that's yeah. It's a very good an analogy. Yeah. The idea is that like, based on the amount of each one of the proteins, we can see if these cells are behaving for example, trying to decrease inflammation, trying to make more synapses and different other f aspects that uh, the cells are, they usually do. But it uh, looks like that like, based on the psychedelics, based on the 5 mil DMT, there are a f lots of different pathways that are directly affected by this compound. Does that, w were you guys surprised to see that? When that came out, was that was that quite a shock to see the the, the extent of the um, but like the potentiation and, and effects on on protein uh, production? No, yeah, we 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 were expecting to have some kind of alteration, but when we saw that like one thousand proteins being altered after twenty four hours, that thing was in our in our uh, mind at least was huge. And then we of course got very excited, especially after seeing which the pathways were uh, affected. And this, again, the, the, the goal of this kind of work is really to show uh, possibilities that should be better explored with different models. But uh, it was huge for us. Are those models then with the, let's say, suggestions for direction that you're, we're going to, this, like, this really hard science generated directions for you should test for this? Are the models going to be animal, or where does it? Where does this line of research, you know, go? Where, what's the next iteration of, of this type of research? Yeah, there are several possibilities. We can uh, continue with the the brain organoids, for example. Let's see. We uh, propose, or we see after analyzing the algorithms and the, the proteins, that like uh, protein A is being activated with this pathway, so we can try to block specifically that protein, for example, with an antibody, and then if we block defect of the uh, pathway with 5 mil DMT, we can confirm that this is exactly the protein that's in that pathway. This is one example. Of course, several kinds of different uh, approaches can be done with the uh, animal models and also directly with humans. So it's basically a huge amount of data that can be explored in different uh, perspectives depending on who, who is working with. Yeah, that's, um, it's a fascinating way into the world of 5 mil DMT because the, you know, the stuff that people bring back from a, a just a clim clinical experience of it or, you know, the recreational experience is just <laughs> so, it's half-life is so short and it's so dense and so intense that you don't get that. It's harder to unpack. It almost seems like this is another way into the mystery of 5-MU-DMT is at the or level of the organoid, not at the level of the, you know, <laughs> the human. There is one comment that, that just I'd like to do is that this work we publish in a journal, it's a very specific or basic journal, and uh, it has a database of 30,000 papers. And the, the, this paper was one of the uh, top 25 papers that were read on that uh, journal. So I was very excited about how many people got interested on the field on this, on this data. Well, f uh, w well done for that because um, getting a bunch of citations is is no small yeah. <laughs> no small thing, and it, it of course it makes total sense. It it sort of blew my mind, and uh, it was lovely to see a lot of people from different, totally different, the silos of expertise starting to go. What the fuck are we going to do with this information? <laughs> but in a, in a positive way. Um, now, there was a lot of talk as well in the Q and A. There was a symposium. Um, about the, um, this this sort of level of, of analysis, 
and about organoids and things like that and consciousness came up a lot I was wondering what how, how has that played into ethical considerations at ethical review board level and maybe just I, I didn't want to ask a question in the Q&A I didn't really know what to ask but how do you think about consciousness in relation to this work yeah I, I mean when you think about consciousness you think about like a, a brain with eight eight six billion cells right what we have in our hands in the lab it's a piece of tissue with five to six million cells so it's it's impossible to have uh, consciousness consciousness in that specific piece of tissue but for of course if you're thinking about like having this tissue become more complex bigger with some kind of uh, simulations such as for example uh, vision and any other kind of uh, different uh, stimulations maybe this could be uh, something that uh, we have to to study a little bit more what's important is that the scientific com community is being aware about all of these ethical limitations that we have to 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 deal with so uh, for us we're basically trying to deal with this kind of uh, tool uh, trying to deal with this kind of tissue as a tool to better explore the uh, brain tissue but uh, there are of course technical and ethical questions that should be uh, answered and should be discussed while we are uh, improving this kind of technique do you think it's do you think it's massively premature to be for there was a few people who sort of alluded to oh organoids are might be sentient and how do you mm -hmm. know they aren't and you're and therefore you're in, in increasing the quotient of human suffering you know in the world is that a massively premature argument? Do you think? I think or? so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point, like we have, uh, the complexity is uh, good enough for the kind of questions that we are trying to ask sure. in the lab, but uh, the tissue is, is far away from yeah. uh, what you're expecting to have in a brain, in a real brain. I mean, it's it is a valid line of questioning because we could be in a in a catastrophizing way. Uh, it is a, th a decent thought experiment to say, well, are we robbing Peter to pay Paul because we have we have reduced the quotient of uh, suffering in the world by, you know, reducing how much neurodegenerative disease and all the heartache that goes with that, but we have all these, you know, uh, sentient things that are, are hurting just the same. Again, I, I don't think I would tend to agree with you. I don't know anything in any detail about these hard problems, but I think we'll be probably arguing about overpopulation on Mars before we're <laughs> getting to the, figuring out the correlates of this. Um, moving then on to much more parochial, um, parochial issues. Uh, you put up a couple of slides outlining some recent issues that had arisen at um, a public talk, not unlike, I'm sure, the one that I've just seen you, you talk at, a symposia. Could you give us a bit of a background into that? Because I, I was not in any way aware of the political unrest around your uh, the research in, in your field in Brazil. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, over the last six months, we have lived in a very complicated situation regarding the support of the government for science. It looks like that the government, they really don't uh, know how to deal well with uh, real data, with science, like, for example, the government is fighting scientists 
that they were in the government for years, for example, dealing with the, uh, the Amazon forest, like the people that were generating data regarding the destruction of the forest and uh, fires in the forest, uh, because they are showing that like, there is a huge increase in this destruction there. Uh, this data has been, uh, have been challenged by the government. And then this scientist has been fired. So it's a very bizarre situation. How many, for scientists, how many scientists? One, the, basically the leader of this uh, institute that deals with the uh, Amazon monitoring the devastation of the forest caused by like uh, people trying to uh, put cattle there or different uh, kinds of agriculture in a reserve. They, they are showing that. And using uh, satellite images, like it's uh, like some kind of, uh, they can, other people can do things and confirm the, what they are seeing there. But because they are showing that like the amount of destruction is so high, so huge there, they are, the government didn't like that, so basically fired the guy. He's a very important scientist in Brazil. His name is Ricardo Galvão. And uh, besides that, like the uh, budget for science was cut in half over the last months. And uh, this week, the uh, government also announced that they are lack of money, so they are going to cut the fellowships of almost 100,000 people. Uh, specifically, eight, 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 840,000. So still, it's almost 100 people. Across the board, or is there some disproportionate clustering of where the, where the clampdown is happening? Is it, is it all different types? Is it, is it the academy gen more generally, or is it in specific areas of scientific research? No, it's in, it's in, in the, the whole academy. It started like with some discussions with the social science people, but now even to the hard science, there's lots of uh, challenges for us. So there's people leaving the country, that's the popular brain drain, right? They are being, they are going to other places. So it's, it's what is making me more uh, angry and sad is to realize that how fast it is to easy to destroy the scientific community because they're basically uh, stopping to invest in science. So the consequence for our country is going to be the worst possible because, like, we are talking about only around six months of that this government is on power. And these guys are going to stay four years. How the scientific community will survive on that, and how the country will survive without science? This is the question that we don't know the answer. The um, you, you mentioned there was a particularly ugly flashpoint with uh, Siddhartha's talk. What what happened there? Yeah, he was giving a talk in a. It was a meeting of the Brazilian Society for the, by Brazilian Society for the Advancement of Science. And he was giving a talk, doing some kind of uh, overview about the, how the government was investing in science. So basically, he was comparing what was the, 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 the investment in science in, di in different agencies that they use, usually support science in Brazil, like the funding agencies. Sure. And uh, suddenly, four soldiers go into, went into the auditorium took some pitch pictures. Armed? Make were a, they armed? They were with the... Uh, Their guns on. No, no, not, not, not with the guns necessarily, but with the, the, the clothes, the uniform of yeah. the, of the uh, soldiers. And, uh, and not, nothing besides that, but it's very, a uh, little bit uh, intimidated, you know, to, for, for you when you're giving a talk, and then some people arrive there. We don't know basically what happened. We don't know if there be any kind of consequence. Honestly, we don't know. Maybe they are just interested on the kind of <laughs> science. But on the other hand, it could be also some kind of sign, you know, or some kind of intimidation. We don't know. But this kind of uh, uh, event 
combined with all of the science that government are giving to the scientists, it's not a good thing. Is there any um, is there any particular newspaper or information source, like most that'll be most likely English speaking, that you would recommend people go to 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 sort of uh, get up to speed on all of this or a broad range? Because it didn't that maybe I'm I have a particular sensibility from where I've grown up to, to, to the military intervention into things is, is not something I take really lightly at all. It just sort of seemed to get brushed over by the audience, in my opinion, and I thought, hang on, this is really important because it, it those types of intervention, it's easier to break things than it is to make them. In six months, you can decimate a scientific community in a way that you can't make progress in six months. Mm. So if people are as alarmed by what you just said as, as I was, where could they go to, to be more knowledgeable about it? Any, any information sources you recommend? Yeah, uh, news about what's happening in Brazil in terms of science, it's uh, being shown in the Nature Journal, in the Science Journal, in Scientific American, even in New York Times or Guardian. All of these journals or in newspapers, they are showing these things. In Brazil, all of these journals are also, all of the newspapers, they are also showing that. There is one that's called Folha de São Paulo, that I think that they have some kind of translation there that's basically describing everything. But there's, there are so many things happening, uh, bad things, to the not only to the scientific community, but the, to the whole country that's even hard to follow. I think that's one of the things that people get that overwhelm, where it's like, gosh, I can't keep up with all of the author authoritarian you know, uh, slips that are happening in, in my own country, let alone somewhere else. Um, so what I'll do is I'll, in the blog associated to the podcast, I'll have a look myself. I'll, I'll link to a few maybe more overview articles and I'll try and give a bit of a broader scope because that have their different political leanings because nowadays n n newspapers aren't <laughs> maybe as just these are the facts and this is what happened as they used to be. So let the listeners make, make, make their own mind up. Um, coming back more just to, to, to the science, what, what outside of your field has talks or, or lines of inquiry have you found particularly interesting at the conference? Is there anything that stood out, stood out for you? Here in the conference here? I liked a lot because it's very different from the kind of conference that I, I used to go, because I usually go to more specific conference, for example, stem cells conference or neuroscience conference. Here, like, we have uh, people from the uh, social science, we have people, uh, clinicians, you have uh, psychologists, you have uh, a few basic scientists, too. So I, I really grow up a lot with this kind of uh, environment and then I go back to the lab and maybe have better ideas so uh, I'm trying to, to think because there are so many interesting talks that like uh, I, I saw I saw uh, uh, now uh, one uh, about the, the the five male DMT the use in humans and uh, some description about the, the the potential benefits of them. So this is something that like for us is very interesting because based on the description of the patients or the volunteers, we can try to figure out the proteins, where to, to where to go. So it's a very important to have this kind of combination. I think that's, um, yeah, anyone listening who is able to act as a sort of intermediary between all that naturalistic data in the DNA, people have been taking, uh, you know, sort of uh, using these things for a long old time and um, will continue regardless what what's clampdowns there are. If someone's able to apply big data to that, I think that will hopefully give a few directions for the people in, in the lab. Um, we shouldn't just dismiss those um, trip reports and uh, side effects because they could give some absolute golden information as to where to where to point the point the microscope, so to speak. Um, uh, 
I've just uh, really wanted to um, thank you for your, your time um, because, as I said, we've covered quite a lot. Uh, it's not areas that I'm particularly well versed in. Um, I've been asking some of the guests uh, is if there was one area that you wished there was a better understanding in the general public about your field of work. Uh, and I've asked this of uh, today, Shane and Adam, and they've given a few areas that I have to go off and research. What one concept, what one um, uh, area, um, proteomics maybe, is there some area that you think in order for people to come to your work and have some working knowledge, understanding, what concept would you like to see get a little bit more wide uh, mainstream understanding of? I think that like a, a more broad kind of uh, area would be neuroscience, sure. right? Because like neuroscience, you have different tools to uh, be applied to understand the brain. So this is actually what makes me very uh, catchy into this kind of uh, of uh, field. When I was a kid, I, was, I have two, two questions. One, the first one was, is there any life uh, besides Earth, so this is a very interesting question. I think that everybody have this kind of question, has a, this kind of question. But the other one was, what is happening inside the brain, right? This is something that's because, like you're talking about again, the number of uh, cells that we have in the brain is the, number, the, the same number of cells that we have, like in the Milky Way, for example. It's it's huge. So this kind of mystery that you can have inside the brain with the tools that we have nowadays, it's a wonderful area to, to study. And uh, so neuroscience, I think that's uh, one of the biggest mysteries, but also one of the biggest uh, areas where the whole humanity is trying to understand a little bit more. Okay, so like almost like a neuroscience 101. What, what is it? You know, what, what is neuroscience and, and how does it fit into to everything else? And how, yeah. does it, how does it sort of, how is it an entryway for people to those big questions people pick up a philosophy book or they go and worship at a church or they uh, you know pick up a microscope it's sort of like just pick your pick your weapon and get get, get at it <laughs> uh, Stevens if people are interested in finding out more about your work uh, where would you um, point them to what what uh, what sort of online platforms would you suggest they go to yeah I have a there is a website from my lab. There yes. is a website from my career also. Yeah. Maybe if you could put in the sure, I'll put a few in links the, to in those. The, in the podcast would be interesting. Yeah. So of course, I'm I'm in Twitter, so mm -hmm. people like like to follow. Yeah. What I'm I'm saying, what I'm doing, and uh, 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 Facebook and Instagram, yeah. all of these things. Uh, before we we finish, yeah. I just really would like to to thank uh, the the supporters of my my work because sure. as we're discussing here. There's a lot. There's basically no more money for science in Brazil. So yeah. I'm really appreciated the help of and the support of the Beckley Foundation. Yes. That's helped me a lot. And of course, uh, if there's somebody that would like to help yeah. our work, we are we'd, we'd love to. Um, that would be uh, a little dirty little secret of mine. Is I would love to act. Uh, I don't want to like. It's not some sort of wish fulfillment here, but it's more a case of when I hear. And I've heard people off camera tell me, or off mic, sorry, tell me, the sums of money that it would take to continue to run these potentially groundbreaking, um, you know, fields of, of research. It's really not that much. And I'm of the opinion that there are plenty, plenty of private individuals out there who are buying bigger yachts and other supercar that does not bring them happiness. I've worked with them. And whenever they start to contribute some of their hard-won wealth and perfectly uh, wealth that they can keep to themselves if they want, not only it's probably the best affective return on investment they can ever have. If someone were to just say, I'm not going to... So any millionaires listening, I'm just trying to persuade 
millionaires, multi-millionaires, billionaires, give a few quid, see what happens. You won't believe how, how um, it's a fascinating world. It's, we've met some amazing people this weekend. Um, and I think Tim Ferriss is a very good example. He's revolutionized some areas of, not revolutionized, but he's really opened up. He's dealt with, he's helped scientists just think about the big problems. So I, I feel anybody out there wants to run cultural interference to stop the interference of the, of the militia. And then we need other people in that lag time where the governments aren't funding like they should. People to come in and go open up the checkbook and go, how much do you need? Couple, whatever it is, that's nothing to me. On you go and try and, you know, eat into the problem of neurodegenerative disorders or whatever, you know, take your pick. So uh, I couldn't agree more and that's super important. And I hope this little podcast maybe helps you connect with people who we have big fat checkbooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. It's my, it was my pleasure to, to talk to you. Thank you very much. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Stephen was a real gentleman. Um, and I would ask you a favor. Please share this podcast on any of the platforms that you use. Stevens has given me permission to say that the continued running of his labs runs into a couple of hundred thousand dollars. So really in the grand scheme of things, not a gargantuan sum of money. And I will be totally direct and totally transparent. I believe that this is one of the most effective places you could possibly put your philanthropic dollars. You can make potentially a massive difference and untold numbers of people in the future might benefit from this. Those that are currently suffering from Alzheimer's, um, who are, have Down syndrome and depression, to name just a few conditions uh, that might be helped by this research. And if you are listening to this and have generated wealth for yourself or know somebody who has and you don't really know what to do with it, just fund this research. Get in contact with us through the Mind Manifest website contact page. That's hello at mindmanifestpodcast.com. Every email is responded to. I will go out of my way to put you in touch with the relevant people who can really move the needle and make your donation have a massive impact at the level of the lab and any donation big or small will be received with a massive amount of gratitude i have the greatest of respect for soldiers who serve their country but filming a peaceful conference that is aimed at improving the lives of millions of people is not what true soldiers do it's what thugs do the military know brazilian scientists don't have the financial resources they do and you just have to spot bullying when you see it, and intimidation when you see it. Stevens is too diplomatic and polite to say so, so this is me talking, um, but I'm not as diplomatic, perhaps, and I just think that you need to send a very clear signal to people who would do things like that to just fuck off. So write a check for anything you can, and your donation just might make the difference between the lab staying open or being forced to close. Uh, Other podcasters or people with profiles, please, Share it with them, get this interview in front of them, and let's just help protect this important lab by putting the conversation on the radar on the radar of people with true leverage. I promised off Mike that I would try and help Stevens and his colleagues to continue their important work, so hopefully this might help. Anyway, next episode is a good bit lighter as I'm chatting to Shane Moss and Adam Strauss, two comedians who don't run hard science labs threatened by authoritarian militia, so that'll be a nice change. Uh, Thanks very much for listening, and until next time, take care.